the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Romans where we are this morning and have been for a few weeks is in the middle of devoting uh, two solid chapters to the truth that we are counted right or righteous in God's sight by faith. And then he actually will spend another several chapters working out all the implications of that. So the question I have is, why is it so important for Paul to devote so much space to this letter to this church in Rome that was the central church for the uh, Roman Empire? Why does he focus so much on it? Well, I think one reason is because the truth that we must be counted right with God by faith alone in Christ makes no sense to natural religion or morality or spirituality. It just doesn't make any sense to how we typically think when we think about being religious. If people have any religion or form of spirituality, it it always involves some rules you follow and rituals that you do to better yourself and gain the favor of God or, or, or God's. A gospel that says, since you can never be good enough on your own for God to accept you, God sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins, to pay your debt of sin to God, so that through faith in him, he counts you righteous in his sight. That, that's offensive and absurd to the, the way we typically think. Or you may be coming from a different angle. Um, you may be thinking this way. If there is a God, he may prefer you to be a good person. He, he likes it when you are. But in the end, he won't really do much about it anyway. Live and let live. Just leave you to your own self to do what you please. He's not going to bother with judgment for sin. So the good news that God gave his son Jesus to die for your sins so that you could receive righteousness from God by faith is a nice gesture, but nothing to get too excited about. If you don't know the trouble you're in, you won't recognize or value the rescue plan when it's presented. If you don't know the mess you're in, you're not going to appreciate how you get delivered from that mess. So Paul writes so much about the truth that the only way we can be right with God is by faith in Christ alone, because to the world it's either offensive, absurd, or irrelevant. So we need Paul's teaching on justification by faith, being counted right with God by faith. So we don't grow dull towards it by the world's attitudes. So we are not deceived by worldly religion and spirituality. So last week in chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, Paul was teaching that since we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we are justified by grace through redemption that is in Christ. And he states very clearly in the last several verses, God... uh, that we are justified by faith in Christ apart from any works we do, apart from Christ, apart from the law. We are counted right with, with God by, by faith alone. If he can show that Abraham uh, was justified by faith, that provides a test case for, for the Jews. What did Abraham do? So let's look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, and see where Paul goes in terms of proving Further, he's, he's basically taking what he did last week and he's saying, here's the evidence that justification is by faith. The encounter right with God is by faith alone. Verse, chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please?
What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the faith, through the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Father, we thank you for your word. Would you, through your Holy Spirit, make it plain to us? Would you make it pointed to us? Would you refresh our hearts in, in the truths of the gospel? Would you show us the glory of Christ? Help me to make it clear in the way I speak, to honor your word, to not misspeak. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So in verse 1, Paul's, again, this is a test case. What will we say that Abraham has gained? What, what did he gain? Our forefather according to the flesh. What has he found? In verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Most of the Jews of Paul's day believed Abraham was a clear example of one who was justified by works. They thought he was the ultimate one justified by works. In particular, by his obedience to God in being willing to uh, give up his son Isaac, that that was him being justified by works. So this is no small matter for the Jews, for Paul to challenge whether Abraham was counted righteous by works. So what what is what Paul is saying is that if it were possible to be justified by works, and if Abraham was, he could boast in that. But it is impossible for sinful people to be counted righteous before God, as he says prior and he makes clear afterwards as well. So Abraham could not boast in that at all. We see that that's clearly what Paul's saying as you go to verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. This text that Paul cites is from Genesis 15, chapter 6, chapter 15, verse 6. The word believe is found for the first time in all the scripture. So this is the first, first um, quoting of the word believe, and it's associated with, with righteousness. In the context of Genesis 15, Abraham was responding to the promise given him by God that he would grant him an heir one that descend from his own flesh. And um, 
that his descendants would ultimately be as numerous as the stars of the heavens. Abraham was not in a position to do that, being upwards close to 100 years old. So it was going to take a miracle for that to happen, let alone for his descendants to be multiplied like the stars. So by putting his trust in God's promise and being counted righteous by God, he showed that righteousness comes through believing, not working. The word counted, it shows up several times throughout this whole text, can also be translated credited or reckoned. It's a, it's a commercial word. To keep records of commercial accounts, it was used for that, uh, to put to one's account. So God's counting Abraham's believing as righteousness means God accounted to Abraham a righteousness that did not inherently belong to him. The reformers of several centuries ago who rediscovered this truth called this receiving an alien righteousness, or made righteous by not by aliens. But not what it's talking about. It's talking about a righteousness that comes from outside us. It's not inherent to us. So Abraham does not serve as an example of, of one whom God counted righteous because of his works, but rather God counted his faith as righteousness. And this was not because faith itself was a, was a work, like a valuable good work in God's sight, but because his faith was a declaration of no confidence in his own abilities and goodness and of his confidence in God's abilities and goodness. Easier said than done. For Abraham to really trust that God was going to give him a child at 100 years old and that that, that child would be the forerunner of literally millions of descendants. Just about as impossible, if not more impossible, is God counting me righteous in Christ. God's going to really count me righteous as Christ is righteous? Really? He can really do that? So it's not just, oh yeah, faith, that's easy. It's, it's not as easy as we make it sound. Paul makes this really clear in the next couple of verses. In verse 4, he says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. He picks up this key word counted from verse 3 and applies it in a general principle about how wages are counted to a worker. If a person works for an employer, his pay is not counted as a gift, but as, as what's owed to him, what's due. So your, your boss, your employer may be a really nice guy or nice lady, but they're not paying you just because they're nice people. They're paying you because you've worked for them, presumably, and they owe it to you. Then in verse 5, Paul takes the general principle and moves to the biblical principle. So when he contrasts the one who works, because he says to the one who does not work, in verse 4 he says to the one who works, his wages are, are not counted as a gift, but as due. And in verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes. You see, the contrast is, he's not contrasting a working person with a, with a lazy person. He isn't saying that a Christian doesn't need to produce any good works. Paul is the last person to teach that. Abraham did do good works. They were the fruit of his faith. They weren't the ground of his righteousness. He, he was obedient in being willing to give up his son, Isaac. It's just that none of his works established a claim on God. 
Rather, what Paul is saying is that to the one who does not depend on his works to be in right standing with God, but believes in God who justifies the ungodly, his faith, his faith is counted as righteousness. So the contrast is between one who sees God is obligated to count him as righteous for his good works, and one who knows God will only count him righteous as a grace gift through faith. He does not work for his righteous status before God. He knows God does not owe him anything and cannot owe it to him to count him righteous in his sight. The one who does not work for his justification believes and trusts him who justifies the ungodly. The only one whose faith is counted for righteousness is one who knows himself to be ungodly, incapable of meriting or earning, uh, doing good so as to earn or merit. Righteousness in God's sight. Jesus described this kind of faith in a parable. And I'll read it to you. It's from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. You can turn your phone there or your Bible there. He told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's a pretty good diagnostic if you trust in yourself that you're righteous. You treat others with contempt. You look down on others if you're self-righteous. So he tells this parable. Two men went up to to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. One was a religious man who everybody would say was righteous, and one was a tax collector who everybody would say is dirt. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So one man trusts in his goodness, trusts that he is righteous, that God owes him righteous standing because of all the good things he's done. And the other knows he doesn't deserve anything other than God's judgment, and he pleads for God's mercy. And yet he's the one who's justified rather than the one who assumed he was justified. There is no clearer statement, I don't think, of the truth that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone than this, that God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. And you say, thank God he justifies the ungodly. Right? Paul's referring to God as one who justifies the ungodly would come as a shock to his Jewish readers. And when you take the language by itself, it is kind of shocking because it seems to contradict what God says in other scriptures. So in Exodus 23, God says, Keep far from a false charge, for I will not acquit the wicked, or I will not justify the wicked. I won't, I won't do that, so don't you do it. Or in Proverbs, uh, verse, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So if you justify the wicked, you're an abomination to the Lord. So here's God doing what he says don't do. And that's because of what Christ has done for us, that he can do it. 
In fact, some um, more modern religious movements have likewise stumbled at this point. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, was so scandalized by the idea of God justifying the ungodly that in his inspired translation of the Bible, his translation of the Bible, he completely rewrote the verse to read that one should believe in God who does not justify the ungodly. So, inserting the word not to make it more acceptable. That's why the reformers who recovered this truth in the 16th century put it this way. The Christian is simultaneously just or righteous and a sinner. Not just a sinner, but just and a sinner. But thankfully, as Paul will later say, sin's dominion has been broken, so that's not all there is to being a Christian. But thankfully, um, God counts us righteous even though we're ungodly. Well, Paul then uh, takes David's help to help expand expound this truth. In verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, Paul quotes David to um, further explain. He says David speaks of the blessing of one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So this is his point, God counting righteousness apart from works. And he cites from Psalm uh, chapter 32, verses 1 and 2, and there in verses 7 and 8 here in Romans 4, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, or in other words, happy are those, how favored are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed or happy is the man against whom the Lord will never count his sin. That The word there is the strongest possible negative. God will never count his sin against him, ever. That's a huge blessing, David says. David should know, because he had some major sins that needed forgiving. He knows that he, he doesn't deserve not to have his sins counted against him. That's a double negative. He knows he, he knows he doesn't deserve to not have his sins counted against him, to be forgiven, to be counted righteous. So when God credits righteousness to people, he forgives their transgressions, he covers their sins, and he will never count your sins against you. You're not going to hear any more about it from God when it comes to judgment. Of course, as we learned last week, God is only willing to justify us by faith in Christ, by grace as a gift, because Christ took God's just wrath against our sins upon himself in his death on the cross. Therefore, God will never repunish our sins in us. The redemption price has already been paid. You know, you get ticked off when you, you get a bill or, or there's like a Walmart receipt and you see that they charge you twice for something. Hey, I already paid for this. God's not going to do that. He's not going to charge you double, place your sins on Christ, and then come back and charge you for it. He's, he's that way. He's, he's righteous. When we make our justification before God, even partly based on our good works or our inherent righteousness, we come up with other ways to get rid of our guilt or to pay off our sin, to earn our right standing with God, such as purgatory, where we get purged from sins after we die, or penance, where we work off our sins before we die, or karma, where we hope to do good things and have good things come back to us, or um, reincarnation, where we get a second chance, but you might come back as a squirrel or a squid. And then if, 
all deals are off. Religious devotion or spirit, climbing spiritual ladders or beating ourselves up and being depressed. We, we, we find other ways to pay off our sins when we're not trusting in God's grace gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ. It's worth noting that Paul's quotation of the psalm provides some insight into what Paul considered to be the nature of forgiveness. Worth commenting on. So according to Paul, forgiveness is the decision to waive the right to demand satisfaction from those who have done us wrong so that the wrong is no longer counted against them. To waive the right to demand satisfaction from those who have done us wrong so that the wrong is no longer counted against them. In in Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, we are to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. So just in case any of us have any forgiving to do, it's a good time to reflect on that. To not hold the sins against those who have harmed you. To forgive them as Christ, God and Christ has forgiven you. Then Paul uh, takes a few verses here, verses 9 to 12, to clarify who this blessedness of being counted righteous by God and forgiven of sins is for. So in verse 9, he says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? So here we go again with circumcision versus uncircumcision. It's a big deal. Paul wants to make it very clear. He's talking about the difference between Jews and Gentiles. And so um, he, he refers again to Genesis 15:6. He says, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So is the blessing only for the circumcised or for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And then in verse 10, he, he asked, how then was faith counted to him for righteousness? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? And clearly it was not after he was circumcised, but before. His faith was counted as righteousness in Genesis 15:6 and God commanded him and his offspring to be circumcised in Genesis 17:9 to 14. The rabbis say it's that was about 29 years. How they counted that I don't know, but it was after. So he was he, he believed God was counted righteous before he was circumcised. That's Paul's main point. Circumcision did not affect his status with God at all, for he was already counted righteous by faith. And then in verse 11, it says he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of his righteousness. So it's answering this question, if, if righteousness is possible without circumcision, then why did God require it at all? Well, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal. What does that mean? It was a validation. It was a confirmation of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And Paul says that the purpose was to make him the father or the original beginning of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So he's the spiritual father of all who believe, even even though not circumcised, in other words, not, not a Jew, so that they, the Gentiles, could be counted righteous as Abraham was. So his main point is by faith, Abraham was counted righteous, and so everybody else is by faith as well. And he says that for the Jews as well in verse 12 and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. 
almost done saying the word circumcised. And so he, the key point is not just that he was the physical father of the Jews, but for those Jews, those circumcised, who also follow in the footsteps of faith of Abraham had before he was circumcised. So the primary connection with Abraham, even for the Jew, was faith, not circumcision. Not any, any physical thing at all. Not the law, not anything that they had other than faith is what connects them to God's saving righteousness. Faith alone. David Berkowitz. Remember that name? In the 70s? Son of Sam, serial killer. Plagued New York City in, in the 70s, murdering six women. Berkowitz had a hard life growing up. He was plagued with seizures. Contemplated suicide while he was young. Lost his mother at the age of 14. His already dark and lonely life grew darker when he began experimenting with the occult after meeting a couple of cult members at a party. This soon took him into deep darkness where he followed the instructions of demons to viciously kill six people over the span of one year from the summer of 1976 to the summer of 1977. Berkowitz was able to cover his tracks for a while, but his sin eventually caught up with him. He was sentenced to six consecutive life years uh, years of life sentences in prison, so 365 years in prison. While Berkowitz's situation seemed hopeless, hope is not out of reach. Ten years into his prison term, a fellow prisoner reached out to him and shared the gospel. Although Berkowitz tried to avoid him at first, his hopeless situation led him to pursue a friendship, clinging on to any glimpse of hope offered. The new friend gave Berkowitz a Bible from the Gideons and told him to start reading the Psalms. Here's what happened next in Berkowitz's own words. One night I was reading Psalm 34. I came upon the sixth verse which says, This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. It was that moment in 1987 that I began to pour out my heart to God. Everything seemed to hit me at once. The guilt from what I did, the disgust at what I had become. Late that night in my cold cell, I got down on my knees and I began to cry out to Jesus Christ. I told him that I was sick and tired of doing evil. I asked Jesus to forgive me for all my sins. I spent a good while on my knees praying to him. When I got up, it felt as if a, a very heavy but invisible chain that had been around me for so many years was broken. A peace flooded over me. I did not understand what was happening, but in my heart, I just knew that my life somehow was going to be different. And something was and is very different from that day in his lonely prison cell. Today, Berkowitz ministers to other prisoners. And although he's behind bars, he has a letter-writing ministry sharing his story and warning people of the dangers of the occult. God has even opened the door for him to share his story on national television multiple times. You may doubt prison conversions. Just like in outside prison, some conversions are real, some are not. 
if David Berkowitz's faith is in Christ is real, God has counted him righteous in his sight, and he will never count any of his sins against him. God can only do this justly if David's sins have been punished in Christ. Jesus took God's wrath for each one of David's murders. If he's, if he's truly placed his trust and faith in Christ. David trusted Christ as, a, as an ungodly man. Even if he had cleaned up his life first, he would have been just a cleaned up ungodly man. Do you believe in God who justifies the ungodly? Are you grateful? Are you believing in God to justify you? Account you righteous by faith alone in Christ alone? Are you worried that that gets people off too easy? God may not know what he's doing. God's not done yet. You've got to be justified in this life to make it to the full meal deal that God has for you. And we'll see that in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, where God says, Paul says, by the Spirit, who God has justified, he has also glorified. That means the full perfection, sin purged, completely just and righteous in God's sight in every way, without any, any remnant of sin left ever. And so sure is it done that you've got to pay attention to, pay attention to the grammar here. Whom God has justified, he has also glorified. Well, that hasn't happened yet because I'm looking and we're not glorified. And I'm checking my life and I'm not glorified yet. As much as you may think that I am. You know better. So you've got to be justified in this life in order for the fullness of God's righteousness to be to fill your whole being in after death when Christ returns. Let's pray. Father, how great your love for us is. It's really, it is vast beyond all measure. You have placed your righteous wrath due against every one of my sins ever, past, present, and future, on your son who perfectly obeyed you. He was the perfect law keeper. He was absolutely righteous. He, had, he didn't deserve to ever be punished in any way, and, and he still doesn't. But you made him who didn't experience any sin of his own to become, to be sin for us, that we might become your righteousness in him. I pray, Father, that no one here today is still not placed their trust in such a generous God, in such a just God, in such a grace-filled God who would redeem us at the cost of his son's life, making him the sin-bearer for all, all of our sins, big and small, as we see it. Thank you, Father. Thank you for Jesus. In his name, amen.